Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. So for, for those who are regulars, uh, I'm not your usual host. For the podcast, uh, I'm Tom Parker. I uh, work in the background usually, but tonight I'll be hosting the annual Bristol Science Fiction and Fantasy Open Mic. So thank you all very much for coming along. For those who haven't been before, it's a five-minute read whatever you want in the genres of science fiction and fantasy. We've had some great uh, readers before where we'll have uh, some scary things some wonderful things, some thoughtful things, some funny things. But it's a really good broad section of what Bristol can offer. And uh, we've also had people have their very first time reading uh, here, then go on to being a guest, then going on to getting published. So it's a, a fantastic starting point. And sometimes you may not get published, but you may get asked to host. So it's always, there's always a silver lining for whoever decides to turn up. So we've got our glorious host, uh, Cheryl Morgan, kicking us off. So if you can please put your hands together and welcome to the mic, Cheryl Morgan. Uh, so my apologies for, for having to rush off. I have to get down to Plymouth tomorrow because I've got work there early in the morning. So once I'm done, I shall be very shortly off to catch a train. Um, but I do have a story for you. Some of you may have noticed on social media um, last week that there was this move to create an anthology of stories of space marine midwives. Apparently somebody had said that everything that women do is very, very boring and space marine stories are much more interesting. So as, as, as happens on the internet, uh, these, these things come together. Uh, and I had an idea, uh, and the idea is kind of rooted in all the historical research I've been doing about the Amazons. So um, you can blame Herodotus for all of this, but it's not actually going to be set in... Uh, uh, in Turkey or whatever, it's, it's Amazons in space. There, that should do it. Should be good as new after a little practice. Dr. Marpesia peeled off her surgical gloves and began the process of shutting down the equipment, leaving the patient to tennis. It took a little while for the anaesthetic to wear off, but after a few minutes, Marina opened her eyes and took in her surroundings. There was no question where she was. Nowhere else on the ship was so sparsely decorated and wedded to an aesthetic of white and chrome. Sick bay, huh? What have I done to myself, nurse? Left arm taken off at the elbow. Whoever he was made a real mess of it. Docs had to give you a prosthetic. Sorry. Did I get the bastard? Apparently so. Marina tried to raise her left arm, realised that she was still strapped down for surgery, then tried to raise her head to see. I can feel my fingers, but I'm not sure they're moving when I tell them to. Guess I'll need a bit of physio. Right's still working fine though, and that's all I need to paint a new kill mark on my helmet. Did I get any others? I can't remember a thing. Tannis shook her head sadly, unable to understand where the thirst for killing came from. It was a game to girls like Marina, a game that often got them killed. The pretty blonde on the bed in front of her had a good chance of ending up as a pretty corpse before she hit 30. Tannis began unstrapping the girl. I'm sure that someone in your squad will have kept a tally. And yes, you'll need physio. Probably quite a lot of it if you want to be safe in battle. There'll be time, right? 
the general reckoned that Ionian ship was carrying something valuable. And if we're all still alive, that means we captured it. With any luck, we'll all be rich. Myrina grinned, and Tanis couldn't help but smile back. I understand that we have their cargo intact, including a number of prisoners for ransom. Hey, do you think we've made enough for a year off? It's been five years since most of us have been able to breed. I bet you're itching to get back to your proper job, and Sinope has been ridiculously broody for the past few months. Tanis said nothing, her brown eyes filled with tears. After a few seconds, Marina caught on and followed suit. Sinope bought it. Oh, shit. This damn gig had better have been worth it, then. Tanis gave her patient a motherly hug and let the girl give vent to her tears. Just then, the sick bay door irised open and a young ensign strode in. Colonel Marpezio, Mum? What is it, ensign? General's orders, Mum. I'm to escort you and Nurse Tanis to the guest quarters. It's the prisoners. Suddenly, the doctor was all business. Is there a medical emergency? Will we need any specialist equipment? Uh, not an emergency just yet, ma'am, but it appears that we've captured an Ionian princess, and she's heavily pregnant, likely to drop any day now by the look of her. Well, said Marpesia, that will be interesting. Come along, Tennis. it appears we have work for you. Tannis gave the prisoner a professional look over. The ensign had been right. The Ionian woman was at least eight months gone. That, however, was by no means the most obvious thing about her. There was a long white sheet on, for starters. as so impractical in zero-g, but de rigueur for Ionian women everywhere, so legend had it. And there was a the jewellery. The woman was dripping in gold and gemstones. Yeah, she was a princess, all right, and she bore herself like one. Every inch of her pose, every facial expression she produced, oozed command. Marpesia had been left in charge. Tennis hadn't often seen the general irritated, but it was clear that she'd been at the end of her tether with the prisoner and needed to calm down before she said something undiplomatic. Rest assured, Your Highness, Marpesia assumed, uh, soothed, our full hospital services will be at your disposal. While we're mainly a military ship, we are an all-female crew. Childbirth is by no means uncommon on board. We even have a specialist midwife amongst crew. Tannis felt the imperious gaze of the prisoner bore into her. What is that creature? Our midwife, your highness. As I think you've noticed, Nurse Tannis is an Enari. We find them... I thought as much, snapped the princess. Are you aware, doctor, that it's contrary to Ionian law for a man to observe me in my current condition, let alone lay his hands upon me? On, upon me? That man's life is forfeit. Have him killed. Now. So next up, uh, we have Ian McConaughey. Um, I'll allow Ian to have a slightly unlimited time to, well, don't do this, but uh, you can introduce yourself um, and then you'll hear that noise. Uh, I guess that means I've run out of time to introduce you. Okay, um, this is the first time it's been read out to an audience. Um, it's a start of, I, I'm absolutely amazed I'm saying this, a novel I'm writing, because I, a year ago I would have not said I'd even attempt to write a novel. Um, unbelievably, I'm up to 90,000 words, so they, if this doesn't work, I've really wasted my time. <laughs> okay, I'll start. <coughs> this city's gone to hell. 
My city, Los Angeles, a city of angels. Streets once teeming with people are now empty. Cars once worshipped now abandoned. Shops looted, gutted, now just burned out shells. As the, as the patrol car takes me towards the crime scene, I pass early morning clean-up squads carrying body bags to the mobile incinerators. Columns of filthy black smoke spewing from metal flues on the corner of each city block desecrate the pure blue sky. Even from inside the cab, I can smell the stench of burnt human remains. A second crew in full biohazard gear moves across the street, pressure washing the sidewalk, spraying detergents to remove the smudge of body fats and spilt fluids. No sign of angels here. It's more like a scene from Dante's Inferno. You'd think that after the appalling loss of lives this last year, when the virus wrecked havoc, there'd be fewer homicides. You'd be wrong. For many, life has become meaningless. With no cure in sight, angry survivors kill as if it no longer matters, as if to say it will end anyway, so instead they seek revenge. The call-out takes me downtown. Someone reported a gunshot, gave an address. Pull across to the curb, next to that street sign. The vehicle stops opposite the alleyway. It's deep in shadow, so I remove my Ray-Bans, peer into the gloom, try to spot the witness or the body. I see a shape lying next to an overflowing dumpster. Park, keep the engine running, pop the trunk. There's a clunk as the vehicle responds to my instructions. The aircon will help keep the cabin cool. It's already a hot day, the temperature is still rising. I retrieve my Kevlar jacket from the, the trunk, disengage the assault rifle racked in its secure compartment. With resources stretched, I'm on my own, so I'm not taking any chances. Detective Jack Dvorsky checking in. No sign of the witness, over. I hear an acknowledgement in my ear. I walk across the street, my senses on full alert. As I move into the alleyway, the outline takes a shape of a prone body with blood pooling around the head. Standing next to it, I look down. From its shape and size, male, in his twenties, medium build, skin anemic, splattered with blood. Bend down, feel for a pulse. There isn't one, he's dead. Check the pockets of his well-worn cracked leather jacket, threadbare black jeans for identification. Hear boots crunch on gravel. Look up, a, stacky, a stocky man in paramilitary uniform emerges from the shadows, face hidden behind a ski mask. He's holding a gun. Police, stop right there. Put down your weapon, I shout. Stand upright, point my rifle at him. He hesitates, moves forward, steps to one side, returning to the shadow. A series of clicks behind me recognize the sound of weapons loading, spin round to see three men, also uniformed and masked. I've walked into a trap and now it's too late. There's muzzle flash, smoke, the deafening roar of gunfire, white hot metal rips through my body. Unbelievable pain! Jack? Jack Dovoski? I recognise my name, try to regroup my senses. Thoughts swim in a fog of confusion. There was an ambush. Three? No, four men. They were armed. Weapons discharged. Pain as my body was torn apart by a shower of bullets. It's a miracle I'm still alive. Jack, good to have you back. It was a close thing. I'll explain what has happened to you and what happens next. I try to look around, assess the situation, but it's difficult. I have no feeling in my body. I can't move my head. 
The overhead light is way too bright. The person talking is male. One of six people, all, are white-gowned, masked and gloved. They stand on my periphery of my vision. I can't see their faces, but they're looking down at me. This is an operating theatre. Jack, you volunteered to be part of the Futures programme. We found your donor tattoo, or rather, what's left of it. Your injuries are severe. All your major organs have been destroyed. You are being kept alive by a life support system. That doesn't sound good. We therefore propose to expedite your application. I try to speak, but I'm unable to respond. I can hear and I understand what he's saying. Jack, the first volunteers have been successfully inducted. Time is of the essence. We will induce coma in preparation for the cryogenic process. During the coming years, you will experience dream cycles. These are essential to ensure brain function survives hibernation. Soon, you will lose consciousness. We wish you good luck. Enjoy your dreams. When you wake up, it will be the future. Then it occurs to me, that's okay, provided there is a future. Bugger you. He clearly did. I was very So, uh, well, thank you very much, Ian. Uh, yeah, can we have another round of applause for you? Okay, our next reader uh, is an old alumni, a person whose job I stole and I'm not giving back, but she's also a wonderful writer and we're in for a treat, and I'm very much looking forward to this. Please give welcome to the stage, Joe Hall. everyone. Um, I'd like to read you uh, the beginning of a short story that will be coming out in the next couple of months in an anthology called The Book of Dragons, which is edited by Adam Dalton. Uh, I'd like to apologise to people like Pete who already heard it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is called Illumination. Yellowed vellum, gold leaf. Gilbert selected the smallest of the brushes and dipped it into the precious pot holding in his breath until he had applied both leaf and a thin covering of glue to the curlicules around the lettering on the manuscript. Only then, once the pot was safely set aside, did he let out a long sigh. It was flawless. He would never have achieved such satisfaction if he had followed his late father into the wool business. Only in taking holy orders had he found out where his true skills lay, away from the law of material wealth, towards the purpose the Lord had in mind for him. Only here could he perfect his art, in silence, inside the peaceful embrace of stout abbey walls, away from the distractions and temptations of the world. It had to be perfect. The Earl of Newburgh had commissioned this new book of hours to celebrate his daughter's wedding. His coffers were deep and his land stretched from the coast, inland to the high moors. The abbey had benefited from his largesse many times. As the finest artist in the order, the responsibility for the illumination of the manuscript had fallen to Gilbert. It was an honour, one he took most seriously. The manuscript was already written. Brother Alid, the Abbey's patient and long-suffering scribe, had copied out the prayers and devotions for each day, and now it was up to Gilbert to decorate the lettering that crowned the psalms and the spaces in the margins as he saw fit. Saints and scenes from the life of Christ, hard-working monks tending their vines or bowing their heads in prayer. On some pages he had sneaked in the image of their good patron, kneeling at the feet of the Lord or ruling justly over his serfs. In Gilbert's experience, it deepened a man's pockets when he saw himself immortalised in art. 
There were hounds and cats. Gilbert was very fond of cats. Gargoyles and demons, twisted little faces peeping out from between green leaves, creatures of the field and of myth. He drew and painted as the will took him, losing himself in the minutiae of his art, filling page after page until he was squinting in the darkness of the scriptorium, copying the most intricate designs from wax tablets onto the soft and yielding vellum. He missed meals. He missed mass. There was only the work. Gilbert absently licked the tip of his brush before dipping it in the red lead, letting his hands act of their own accord. He pushed aside the wax tablet. He disliked using it, preferring the feel of the calfskin, the instinct that guided him in his art. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit flowing through him. That was what the abbot had remarked upon when he viewed the completed pages. Gil Gilbert didn't know. He thought the Holy Spirit would feel different somehow, that it wouldn't leave him with an aching back and squinting eyes. Ten years of this painstaking work had left him with a pain in his head that plagued him at all hours, a hunch to his shoulders and a mottled rash across his tonsure. His nose and throat were as raw as the tips of his fingers when he pressed them to his stinging eyes, just for a moment, before taking up the brush once more. The whitewashed cell walls seemed to lean in around him. There was a window high above, but it was a narrow slit, and even craning his aching neck, all he could see were grey clouds, like smoke piling in on top of each other. Not a day to be outside, and he bent his head once more to the painted page. A curve of scarlet just inside the gold. A sinuous shape forming beneath his ink-stained fingers. A poisonous serpent, maybe, come down from the trees of Eden to tempt Eve into original sin. No, not a serpent. This was a legged beast, a worm. A worm with spread wings and a tongue of flame that flicked out to lick at the gold leaf, to melt it like the fire of a forge. The gold was dripping, running down the page. Gilbert blinked hard. His eyes were streaming and he saw the droplet fall. He tried to catch it with his rough spun sleeve, but he was too late. Too late, and the ink was smudged, and the page was ruined. Brother Allard would have to start his scripture all over again. And Gilbert knew he would say nothing in words, but the Welsh monk's sighs of complaint would rattle the feathers of the birds in the trees, all the way from here to the walls of York. He felt a deep pang of guilt as he sat back, numbed. He was dazzled by the sudden light that flooded into his eyes as he looked up from the vellum, his hand moving automatically for the blotter, trying to clean up the stain. The script was soiled, unreadable. How could he have let that happen? Gilbert shook his head to clear his thoughts. A moment of distraction, that was all. He was overtired again, seeing things that weren't there, and his fatigue made him clumsy. The vellum could be put aside and scraped clean, used for some cheaper work. He rejected it and took up another page. Quotations from the book of Job, maybe some solace for a wealthy man who had lost two sons, maybe an insurance for the Abbey against future financial hardship. The righteous might suffer, but so long as they didn't turn away from the Lord, a man could buy his place in heaven. Gilbert narrowed his lips. We'll never know. I look forward to reading that uh, in what's the name of the collection? It's the Book of Dragons. The Book of Dragons. Anyway, thank you very much, Joe. We'll give a round of applause for Joe. I think uh, our readers so far have been fantastic. We'll probably need a rewarding drink. So um, our, our next reader is a brand new reader to the Bristol Conference, but a dear friend of mine, and uh, I'm very pleased to be welcoming her to the stage. Uh, so please put your hands together and give a warm welcome to Felicia Barker. 
Uh, I don't really have anything to say by way of introduction, really. Uh, what kind of stuff do you write? Uh, usually not this. Usually <laughs> science fiction. Um, I, I was pitching for a Doctor Who audiobook last year and it got down to like five people. This is like fantasy, which is not usually my thing, but... <laughs> okay. The storm was so far only in the sky. The clouds were low and broiling, but the air was still warm and blustery. The rain and lightning had yet to break upon the mound. A giant figure stalked up the bank, his wild hair flapping about him, the scent of his sweat blown behind him like a cape. The great horns that crowned his head preceded him into view. Antlers, perhaps, was a better word. Or even, as they grew closer under the silver pall of the moon, they might have been withered boughs of some greybark tree. The titan crested the brow of the little mound with a slump of excessive fatigue. He curled his fat and hairy lip at the figure across the way. A woman stood still and calm on the brow to meet him. She was so serene she might be stood in the eye of the storm. She took one step forward to close the gap between them. The enormous man grunted. Tartania! Ill fucking met by moonlight. The queen of fairy fixed her king with the gaze of two black eyes. Against his will, Oberon looked briefly down at his horny feet. The queen spoke. Oberon, you will observe the courtesies of this place, for here we do the business of the fairy court. Business is business, Tartania, but you and I is personal. The queen's expression did not change. Her gaze remained unwavering. For the royal blood of fairy, the personal is political. Oh, you've got fancy words, your highness, but I reckon truth is... You just can't take mine. My mouth does offend, for it is too big and does you hurt. The Queen's brow arched exquisitely. I will not offend your stature, King, but your greatness does not threaten me. Oberon's knotted scowl untwisted at these words, and a coarse, yellow-toothed grin broke amid his tangled beards. Ha! You still have wit, lady. But I will spare you my answer, for I believe I see good fellow mincing about in the shadows. Show yourself, you sly knave! A third figure flitted forth into the clearing, where it appeared he had been hovering on the fringes for some time, though no one could have said when he had arrived. Where Titania was lithe and tall and Oberon a mighty hulk, the newcomer was diminutive, almost a child in appearance, with soft skin and hair that danced about his head like the mane of a dandelion. He approached the lord and lady and gave them a deep and deferential bow, though the act was so exaggerated one could not quite say that it was meant wholly respectfully. If the little man was cowed by his towering masters, he gave no sign of it. Rising from his bow, he began immediately to hop back and forth between the two betters, stabbing one querulous finger starward. Great Oberon, your eye is keen as air, for I tis I Robin at your service, sir. But Lord and Lady, your humble aid, though I fare do laugh to hear mock maid, it falls to me to make matter of the matter. The child is come. Thence is not that her? Goodfellow's wagging finger now traced a wild arc down from the dome of the heavens to jab across the clearing at yet another newcomer to the congregation. 
If Oberon and Titania were at all surprised by the apparition's presence, it was nothing at all to the look of the new arrival themselves. The fuck is happening? The human screamed. It's a common conceit when considering a person confronted with an impossible or inexplicable circumstance to imagine them assuming the circumstance to be a dream. But in practice, this is not what happens. Dreams have a very particular tangibility. In short, a dream feels dreamlike. Situations of immense stress, fear or confusion do not have that sense. On the contrary, they have a most acute and heightened reality. This is why we respond to a threat in a dream very differently to how we would respond in the normal way of things. By that same token, when reality greets us with the incomprehensible, it is by and large never the case that we respond as though to a dream. What the fuck? The human screamed again. <laughs> the Bristol Confringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Confringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe. <laughs>